Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. Today, we welcome Ash Fontana from Zeta Venture Partners. Ash's firm was the first to focus exclusively on machine learning-based companies. Ash has brought in deep knowledge on AI, data, and creating compounding competitive advantage. Previously, Ash spearheaded the effort to launch syndicates on AngelList, an investment approach that has created significant value for our firm, Newstack Ventures, and our backers. In this interview, we cover the categories of AI that Ash is most interested in, the difference between real AI and AI-enabled companies, why venture-backed SaaS businesses will falter, the current AI stage of adoption, how he times the market, what phase of AI they invest in, how AI will be affected by limitations on data, how startups can compete for talent with GAFA, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple, the moats that are being created by their AI-first portfolio companies, how they think about metrics and milestones for AI-backed companies, if AI should be feared. And finally, we wrap up with Ash's thoughts on Chris Dixon's position that we will see a movement from centralization back to decentralization in tech and the role that AI will play. According to CB Insights, AI investing just had its biggest quarter with over $1.9 billion invested in Q1 of 18. The segment continues to grow as it moves from hype to real applications driving real value. I hope you enjoy the discussion about it. Here it is with Ash Fontana of Zeta Venture Partners. Ash Fontana joins us today from San Francisco. Ash is Managing Director at Zeta Venture Partners. Zeta was the first fund in the world to focus exclusively on machine learning-based companies. They manage $185 million and have seen some big early successes with Unicorn Domo and also Kaggle, which sold to Google about a year ago. Prior to Zeta, Ash played a key role at AngelList with their syndicate deal platform. Ash, welcome to the program. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Can you start off with uh, your background and how you ended up at Zeta? Yeah, sure. Um, I guess when I was a kid, I was weirdly interested in two things. I was weirdly interested in pulling apart companies and looking at balance sheets and investing in stocks, um, but also pulling apart computers. And I just kept following those interests, I guess, and uh, realized there was a job that existed that combined those two things. And that is investing in technology companies. So uh, realizing that was a job was a very satisfying moment in my life. Um, but then I had to go out and get the skills to, to do that job. So I went to law school. I worked in lots of different types of investing. So I worked in like growth equity, uh, public equities research, investment banking. Um, and then I felt like I had the skills to go for it. And out of nowhere, an opportunity popped up to join AngelList after I had started and sold my previous startup. And I just started working there and got a very unique perspective on early stage investing and really got the, the got the business side of the company going. So worked with the teams to build the products, um, set up the funds management, did sort of the, I guess you'd call it business development to, to get syndicates off the ground. And it was just two of us really working on that in the early days. Uh, and now it's obviously the, the platform and managing billions of dollars. So that was a very cool ride. And after that, it, it was only after that that I felt ready to concentrate my efforts um, and really focus on helping companies on a one-to-one basis and managing a good amount of money. And that's when I met my partner, Mark. And uh, we really gelled over this this focus that we have and what we wanted to invest in and, and went for it. 
Good. So I should thank you for uh, helping spin up syndicates, huh? That's what. That's where I kind of got my start. <laughs> you should thank a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was. I'll never forget the day Naval walked in the door with this brainchild. We were doing this online investing thing where startups could raise money for themselves online, and it was working well. But Naval just sort of walked in one day, and he's like, "Brilliant moments that he has," and he's like, "What if we just let anyone raise money for anyone using this platform?" and called it syndicates and i just i was blown away i'm like that's a fantastic idea and he's like okay you go and do it now um so i wow. teamed up with another guy there mike a fantastic engineer at angelist and we uh we did our best to get it going obviously many people have touched the product since then and uh and it only is what it is because of you know it is just the platform right the real work on top of it is done by people like you who, who run the run the deals and do the research and form the relationships well, it's, it's an amazing platform. And coincidentally, I'm going through the close process on my fund right now. And uh, I'm actually yeah. using AngelList. They have full yep. venture fund capability now, back office. So it's, uh, oh, it's yeah. amazing. <laughs> yeah, I'm fully aware. We set up all the funds management stuff and worked really hard basically to automate as much of that as possible and get it down to, you know, when we started, the price of doing it was more than 10 times what it is today. So there's been a lot of like little, little things over the years that have reduced that cost and made it a lot easier. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. I guess I'm going to be, I'm going to be in the first tranche of, uh, of full venture funds on the platform. Uh, they've been doing yeah, angel you funds. Will be. So yeah, fingers crossed. Everything's been, been good so far. So, uh, really enjoy working with the team over there and, uh, yeah, yeah it's great. So anyway, let's great. get, let's get on to Zeta. So tell me about sure. your investment focus and, and sort of this mm-hmm. this machine learning orientation that you guys have. Yeah, I guess the I guess maybe I'll start by just talking about focus in general. I mean, what does it mean to be a focused fund? Why be a focused fund? Because you know, most most venture funds are not focused. They're technology generalists, so to speak. And sure. we've just sort of taken the view that being extremely focused um, is much better for developing an investment process. It's much better in terms of the operational expertise and the problems you come across. You see more similar problems. Um, the networks of people you hire from, you can be more focused in building those networks. So, for example, building a network of very good machine learning engineers or very good data engineers, data infrastructure people. Um, networking with customers, um, getting intelligence on who's acquiring what, um, and just marketing our firm, right? There are a lot of venture firms today. and lot of different ways to break out um but one of those ways is really going deep in an area so we just believe in having a focus fund interestingly it's empirically proven that focus funds perform better than generalist funds is that right Uh, yeah there was a pretty good study by um by josh learner at harvard harvard a while ago um and he showed that focus funds get a 16 percent higher multiple uninvested capital and a 33 percent higher irr than generalist funds and they also have a lower failure rate, so they have a, a lower loss rate in the portfolio. Hmm. Um, so it's sort of more of a side point, like the methodology you can question, but um, it's, it's interesting to note that empirically focused funds perform better. So we wanted to be focused, um, but you know, focusing on a, a sector or a trend, it's, it's easy to be focused on something that's a bit more of a fad. So we sort of thought, well, what's a fundamental shift in computing that's going to affect the next couple of decades of technology investing? And that shift in computing is the shift to intelligent systems, you know, moving from a world where your software is just a fast calculator or something that executes a little workflow for you um, to something that makes decisions for you. Um, when you think about what technology is, it's, it's something that gives you leverage as a human being. And if, if technology can go from just helping you do something quickly to helping you actually make a better decision, that's more leverage. Um, and we thought that shift in computing was going to affect everything. Every category of software will go from being a workflow to being an intelligent system. Um, and so that's what we decided to, to focus on. And we did that, uh, officially launched it in, well, officially started in 2013. And that was around the time where, you know, it was pretty obvious to us, at least, that there was a resurgence in research in machine learning, that computing power was getting cheap enough, the right sort of chips were available on the cloud to run these models. Um, and there was a lot of data. And that's, that's uh, to sort of wrap it up, that's why we're called Zeta, because in 2013, 
a zettabyte of data went across the internet for the first time. And that is what's really enabling this era of intelligent systems. Got it. So, so how do you frame out AI and sort of what are the categories that you're looking at within it? Do you look mm. at machine learning, NLP, mm. um, you know, other mm. categories that way, or are you kind of taking a, a different frame? Yeah, it's very, you know, now that we have that focus on intelligent systems, anything within that is fair game. And both in terms of the type of technologies people use to build intelligent systems and also the areas to which it's applied. So on types of technologies, yeah, you know, some some problems, so for example, optimizing the use of supplies in a hospital just need very good regression methods um, or, you know, figuring out certain supply chain problems just need very good probabilistic techniques, probabilistic programming techniques. But some problems need sort of very cutting edge neural networks like language translation. So different tools for the job. And, you know, we... It's very hard to stay across all the areas of intelligent systems and machine learning, um, but you know we have a shot at it because you know we don't have to, for example, know anything about consumer branding or marketplaces or social networks or e-commerce. Um, we don't profess to, and nor do we think we do know anything about those areas. Um, but we do know a fair bit about machine learning. So different tools for the job, all different, all different areas of machine learning are fair game for us, um, and also sectors. You know, we don't just focus on industrial uh, IoT or industrial intelligence systems, or we don't just focus on like applying this to um, e-commerce applications. We think it's going to affect every area of technology, every area of industry. Um, and so we, we, look in, we look at all of them. I guess how we break it up is based on the, the type or the quality of problem the AI is trying to solve. So is it trying to solve a problem that, is one solvable by using these methods like will the machine learning actually deliver a prediction that's of value to the customer and is that technology available today is it available cheaply enough and can you get the data to feed it um so we sort of focus more on where the technology is on the technology risk curve and the adoption curve and less on what particular tool they're using or what industry they're in got it i always find it funny how so, so my firm has a pre-seed focus. We also have an IoT focus. Mm-hmm. But I always find it funny how I talk to experienced practitioners within venture, and their feedback to me is, "Ooh, are you too focused? You know, can you get enough deal?" Yeah. But I'll yeah. talk to people in other asset classes, and they're like, "Oh my gosh, you're not focused at all. Shouldn't you focus yeah. more? You know, within IoT, or you know, to your point, within AI." And uh, it's all a matter yeah. of perspective. I think uh, the insiders probably understand it a bit a bit better. Yeah, and look, it's been an education process for us too. Um, you know, when we first started raising the fund in 2013-14, we absolutely got that feedback as well. Like, that's way too focused, you know. Everything from that's too focused to we've heard this story before in the 80s. Um, and now people are asking the question, you know, are you focused enough? Um, so we've certainly got that feedback, but, you know, we've just sort of stayed the course. Um, I think it is very early days for the application of intelligent systems to lots of different problems of great consequence to society. Um, and so we're just staying the course and staying focused on it and um, trying to keep up. You know, in the early days, it was really easy to keep up with all the research papers coming out of the big institutions and, um, and companies. But now that it's a, it's a real fire hose. Um, so we're doing our best. Awesome. So, so Ash, I got to ask you, you know, it, it seems like lately every other deck I get, especially from a SaaS company, is powered by AI or it's, it's built on blockchain. Um, what do you think of the numerous companies that aren't really AI, but maybe they're AI-enabled, and how it almost seems like every startup founder wants to use the AI buzzword, even if that's not the compelling differentiation? Yeah, for sure. And... Look, most of them won't have any sort of intelligent system in play or will just sort of be pulling something off the shelf. Um, but that's pretty easy to, for, you know, for people like you and I to figure out. And that's fine. You just assess that company on a different basis. You just mm-hmm. ask, well, do they have some other source of competitive advantage? You know, us, we at Zeta, we're completely focused on valuing data and machine learning as a source of competitive advantage. But, of course, it's not the only one. Again, you can have brands, networks, critical mass of the marketplace, like they're all pretty compelling sources of competitive advantage. So, 
you sort of work out pretty quickly if it's if AI is the core competitive advantage or if it's not. Um, with respect to then it sort of gets a bit more nuanced. So is it just a sprinkling of AI, like a few predictive features on a SaaS product? Or is AI really at the core of it? Like the whole value to be delivered to the customers depends on getting the prediction right, whether it's recognizing something in an image or analyzing, um, trying to extract some meaning from a paragraph of text. So in the former category, I, I sort of call it AI enhanced, like sprinkling AI on SaaS. Um, that can that can be everything from you know a nice feature that doesn't really differentiate you in the market to something that's pretty valuable to customers. And you know you just got to learn by talking to customers and figuring out how hard that feature was to build as to whether you're confident as an investor that's a source of competitive advantage and differentiation in the market. Um, so those sorts of products can be good. I will say in general, if you're just sort of sprinkling AI on a SaaS product today, it's probably not enough to differentiate because you know there are a lot of great tools available and a lot of people with enough data can can build some sort of predictive feature pretty easily. So it's probably not enough um, to to be a source of sustainable competitive advantage today to just sprinkle AI on SaaS. I would say. And so you just got to figure out whether it's a sprinkling or whether it's, it was actually really hard to do. Sure. Sure. Well, clearly you're somebody that likes, uh, you know, core technology as a, a driving differentiator mm-hmm. and, and value source. And you've written about SaaS before. I've, I've read some of your articles and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you take an interesting viewpoint, uh, maybe a contrarian one. Mm-hmm. So talk yeah. more about what you think of SaaS as an investment category within venture capital. Yeah. So, the key words there, I guess, in that question are within venture capital. Um, I will say at the start, like there are endless opportunities for entrepreneurial people and investors that sort of want a, a, a non-venture type return to build SaaS products for a whole long tail of industries that need better software. Um, that's, a, that's still and will be a huge opportunity for many years to come. However, I think for venture capital funds, you know, given the duration of our funds, you have to be investing in something that's got a, has foreseeably has a competitive advantage for decades. And I think it's pretty hard to build a competitive advantage by just building software. Like software is not as hard as it used to be to build and building a really nice workflow product that's well-designed, that runs fast, that's in the cloud you know, it's not that hard. You know, a lot of people could copy that product in a year, for example, or six months. And so, you know, if you're a venture capital investor investing in that sort of stuff, and then it's copied one or two years later, um, you haven't even exited at that point. And the company, you know, will probably not enjoy a competitive position in the market and then won't be valued very well. And then you won't get your return. Whereas if you're an investor investing in other areas of technology, that are very, very difficult um, to build with today. So, for example, machine learning, you're going to be a little bit further ahead of the market. And so by the time that, you know, your company gets to the point where it might be able to exit and provide a return to you and therefore to your limited partners, it, it will be valued nicely. So to sort of sum all of that up, I think that just pure SaaS is not really a category for venture investors. It might be a category for debt investors or... Um, very, very early stage angels that get in at great valuations. But for venture, it's just, it's hard to believe that you're going to have a company that's going to keep delivering good returns to you in five, 10 years time. Wow. It's controversial. So you think SaaS yeah. is dead or SaaS is dying at least for, uh, for venture capital investors moving forward? Like seed series A venture capital investors, I think it's, it's pretty hard. Um, of course, some products will be, will be unique, but just building software is not is not going to keep you ahead of the game anymore. Interesting. So back back to AI. Uh, where do you feel like we're at in in the adoption of AI? Yeah, um, good question. And we we think about this a lot, right? And my partner Mark likes to say, you know, as venture capital investors, we're just paid to time markets. And so we we think a lot about where are we in the adoption of AI by you know real companies in terms of buying products enabled by that. And where we've landed recently is breaking it up into sort of four phases of the adoption of AI. You know, the first phase is 
AI applied to consumer applications. And so we saw this sort of about 10 to 15 years ago where, you know, Google used AI to make search results better, um, where Amazon used it to give you product recommendations. And, you know, the risk of adopting AI in those situations is very low. Like if Amazon gives you a product recommendation that's good, awesome, you'll, you'll buy it. Um, but if it's not very good, you know, you might laugh. It might suggest like a silly mask or something or other that you should, or a costume and, you know, you just laugh and move on. We've all been um, there. So right? it was pretty low risk. <laughs> What's that? I said, we've all been there, right? We have all been there. All Google giving you a completely bizarre search result. <laughs> um, so, uh, or Netflix recommending something inappropriate to your kids. So, you know, it's not the biggest cost um, for those companies to adopt AI. And that's why they did it first, right? Google, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix. They did a great job of sort of pioneering the use of AI in their products early on. And then we moved to sort of a slightly higher risk application of AI. And this was around 2010 to 2015. And that was where the, it was these AI enhanced applications. So you had like a CRM or a, a sales lead gen tool, and it would start using predictive algorithms to suggest a lead to you. Now, again, that's sort of not zero cost if that lead is bad because you've had to make the phone call and it turned out to be a bad lead. But it's, it's pretty low risk um, and has a pretty nice payoff because if that lead is good, you know, the AI system has recommended something to you that's made you money. Um, so sort of sprinkling AI on SaaS was the next, uh, the next, next risk point or the next phase of adoption of it. Um, and I think we're sort of getting to the end of that phase where, you know, consumers are pretty comfortable, consumers of enterprise software are pretty comfortable being suggested things by AI um, if it's not going to cost them anything to sort of have a look at that suggestion. The, the third phase of AI is sort of this AI-centric stuff, which is where you're starting to completely replace a workflow. So, you know, you're using image recognition technology to uh, assess the damage of a crashed car and make a decision about to repair or replace that car, like a significant financial decision. And there's no human really involved in that. Maybe they're involved in the labeling and training of the system, but there's no human involved in that. And that's a pretty risky proposition for uh, an enterprise buying that product because if the AI fails, the whole product fails. Um, but, you know, computer vision and other areas are getting so good that um, they're, they're thinking about adopting products like that. So I think that's the phase we're in now where AI is getting more centric and the risk of using it is pretty high, but the payoff's great because it replaces an entire process in a company. Um, the next and final stage of AI, which we're just starting to get into, I think, is applications that we didn't even think of before. Um, that we can start thinking of because we have these AIs that understand really complex systems. So that is, you know, using AI to optimize um, data center use, data center power usage, or even bigger than that, using AI to optimize the flow of energy across an entire electricity grid. Um, they're things that humans just can't even think about solving because we can't handle that degree of complexity in our heads. Um, and that, and but they're obviously very. Um, risky situations like if you let an ai run wild on the power grid and it doesn't work then we're all in trouble um and that's true of a lot of medical applications as well right you know it's very different to sort of make a suggestion to a doctor um and that as opposed to replacing a decision that a doctor would make for example um the, you know popular example is uh, analyzing images so sort of radiography or, and such yep. so i don't think we're quite at the point where we're ready to trust ai to to do those things, but we're, we're getting there. And so we're sort of in this third phase of AI adoption, getting into the fourth phase. Interesting. Yeah. Your, your doctor example, I was, I was reading an, an article recently. Uh, I can't remember where it was, mm -hmm. but um, it showed that if you take doctors and show them a, uh, an x-ray, for instance, mm -hmm. um, their diagnosis changes, you know, between an array of very intelligent doctors. If you know all ten of them yeah. are looking at the same X-ray, yeah. they they have completely different diagnoses of you know what the issue is. And then even if you give the same doctor the same X-ray and it's mixed in with yeah. others, but you give it to him over and over again, he will diagnose it differently. Differently uh, every each time. time. Yeah. yeah. So that was just uh, it, it. Didn't increase my confidence in <laughs> in our medical professionals. I, I don't think it's their fault, but it was. Uh, I mean, it was an yeah. alarming study to read. It is, but, you know, it's it's also, even when presented with that information, people 
for many, many reasons, are still just not willing to let AIs that are objectively better at diagnosing completely replace a human being mm -hmm. because, um, you know, all the obvious reasons medicine is not just about the diagnosis, it's about the care. Um, and so we're still trying to figure out uh, how to use AI or, or how to get people to adopt AIs to do those things that humans, to completely replace humans. And so that's like a, a, an adoption risk, right? And that's, you know, as investors, we're paid to sort of price that risk. Um, and we figure out or price that risk by talking to a lot of doctors, talking to a lot of hospital administrators, talking to a lot of patients, reading the studies like you were reading and figuring out, okay, well, will any of these things change in the next five years? Because if they do, this technology will absolutely be adopted and we'll have the leading technology in the space and it'll be, you know, this space is worth this much and blah, blah, blah. And that's our process. Um, so it's very sort of important to be very cognizant of exactly what adoption risks you're pricing. Um, and that's what we do specifically um, in, in our field with AI. And it's such an interesting question with AI, right? Because, you know, it's such a human question really with AIs being good enough to replace humans in some tasks um, it's it's very interesting to sort of consider, okay, is it objectively better, but but still won't be adopted, like the example you gave. Yeah, for sure. So, Ash, to your earlier point about timing the market, mm. uh, you talked about these mm. different phases, phase one through four, and how we're kind of in the midst of phase three. Uh, what mm. are the implications for your investment strategy? You know, it's a long cycle business. Does that mean that you're mm. you're firmly sort of embedded in investing in the phase three tech, or you know, will you go? and invest in phase one or two, or is it all about yeah. you know, phase four at this stage? Yeah, good question. Um, I can probably take it down to brass tacks pretty easily, uh, which is that you know, if something's in the phase two, which is these AI-enhanced applications like SaaS with a sprinkling of AI, we tend to require a bit more traction and a bit more market proof um, because you know, they, don't, they probably won't enjoy a competitive advantage just by virtue of their technology and their data for much longer. Um, so if it's a phase two company, we'll absolutely look at it. Like, as I said, there are so many ways to apply this to solve so many problems, um, but we'll require a bit more traction. Whereas these phase three companies, um, so these sort of AI-centric companies that are using AI to replace a complete workflow, will invest like absolutely well before traction when it's just a prototype or a product and they're collecting unique data and they, they've got some experimental evidence that the predictions they're able to make are accurate and of some sort of commercial or industrial consequence. Um, so these phase three companies will look at it when it's more of a, a product or a prototype collecting unique data. These phase four companies, which are using AIs to solve problems that you know we don't even use software to solve today, um, they are companies we're very, very excited about. And you know, if it's a credible team and they have access to unique data to, to run the experiments they need to run, um, then we'll start backing them at that stage. So, again, it's just about figuring out exactly where they are um, in terms of adoption risk and also sort of how defensible will the technology be. If the technology is going to be really defensible, like, for example, building an AI that understands demand and supply on the power grid, then that's going to enjoy a really long period of a competitive advantage in the market so we can invest a little bit earlier there. Um, so that, that's, that's how we think about it. I like it. So you've ref referenced data a couple times now and uh, mm. I was chatting with a, a friend and advisor, Leo Pulovitz at Sousa Ventures. Um, he's got a thesis and focus uh, around mm. data and, you know, part of his position or part of the challenge on data is that the data sets it's, themselves can be limited, right? If you don't have a yeah. broad and robust data set, then whatever algorithms or other forms of intelligence that you apply are, are can be limited, right? You need a robust yeah. data set. So, you know, how do you think this intelligence era, as you call it, and, and AI itself, how do you think they may be constrained or not by, uh, yeah. by limitation of data? Yeah, it's a really good question. And um, funnily enough, I'm just getting to the tail end of writing a book right now about, you know, what does competitive advantage mean in this sort of fourth era of computing, this AI era. Oh, and a big part of the book ended up being, and I didn't expect this, but once I started writing about it, I sort of figured this would be quite useful. So I wrote a lot about it. It ended up being just tactics for acquiring data sets. 
Um, and I go through all sorts of tactics. So, you know, the most obvious source of data is just getting it from your customers. And so then that involves all sorts of questions around the rights in your contracts and figuring out how to build a customer data network to get customers comfortable with sharing data with each other and things like that. Um, you know, building a workflow application that ostensibly does one thing, but is actually collecting data for another thing and has this interesting data resource, so to speak. Building really interesting e integration ecosystems to collect a bunch of data from a bunch of different sources. Um, the company we work with, Clebit, does that. Um, there's this whole new sort of business area of business operations forming around how do you build really efficient data labeling operations? So a couple of companies um, we work with and for which I sit on the board, they have built these amazing teams that are really efficient at using non-expert humans to label data sets um, that previously were only understood by experts. And then they use all sorts of tools like interactive machine learning and active learning tools that help the humans get faster and faster at labeling the data. Um, there's all sorts of cool stuff, you know, everything from acquiring data from government sources to, you know, creating token-based incentive networks for people to contribute their own data. And then that, if that data is bought, that value accrues back to the token holders, um, like a crypto token holder. So there's so many interesting ways to build data sets and we see a lot of weird and wonderful ways that people do that. Um, so I, you know, while yes, uh, I think sort of the, the elephant in the room in this question is, look, these massive companies like Google, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix have huge data sets and they're not giving them away anytime soon. So how does a startup compete? I really think there are lots of ways a startup can compete if they pick their niche accordingly. Like, sure, you're not going to beat those companies in terms of acquiring certain data sets about consumer behavior. Um, but if you're trying to acquire a data set around you know, how a certain process works in a factory, then you're going to be able to do that. Uh, you, or there's an opportunity to do that in a way that no other company can. Um, you just got to be really creative. So is it going to be the, the non-consumer opportunities that you think startups have, have better opportunities in than... I think uh, in a very... Sorry, I think in a very general sense, yeah. Um, and we just don't. We just don't work with any consumer companies or look at any opportunities that are direct to consumer, um, sort of for that reason. You know, also because our experience is in enterprise and you know, in sales and marketing and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, we do have a belief that it's pretty tough to beat a lot of those big companies or get a data advantage if you need certain consumer behavior data because mm. they've sort of got a lot of it locked up. Mm. Have you ever passed on an investment because? Let's say the tech itself was incredibly compelling, but you had concerns about a lack of a, a robust enough data set uh, to, to be able to leverage. Yeah, that's a really interesting question, I think, for a lot of investors in this field, which is, you know, is the algorithm enough? Do you need the data? At what point do you um, do invest? When's too early, uh, right? Like, how do you price the risk of that machine learning system actually working in practice? It could be it could look fantastic in a research paper, but once you start feeding data through it, it might be completely unstable. You know, six months later, it might start spitting out completely ridiculous results. Um, so we have um, we have passed on companies that you know may have had a really interesting approach theoretically to solving a problem, but haven't actually put real data through it and seen if that algorithm is stable over time. For example, um, and we have a bunch of different ways we analyze data sets and analyze the efficacy of a machine learning model. Um, and then it's relatively quantitative, the way in which we analyze that stuff. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. 
Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Awesome. So we talk a lot about moats on the program. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had Bilal Zabiri on from Lux. He talked a lot about moats. We had Tim O'Reilly on, talked about moats, and uh, James Hardman from uh, Data Collective. How do you think about moats with regards to, you know, these AI-first companies that that you're investing in? Hmm. So I think the distinction is that uh, data is the moat, and machine learning is just a way to compound the value of that moat. Yep. Um, or, or increase the size of it at an increasing rate. Um, so, you know, step one for us is always analyzing the data set. Um, you know, is the data set uh, something that was really hard to get? Um, is the data set something that is, is it using fungible data? Like it's all well and good to have a data set that was really hard to get, but if you can feed the same algorithm with data that is very similar to that, but easier to get, well, then that data, first data set's not very valuable. Um, does the data have a high dimensionality? Um, so, you know, what does it tell you about the problem you're trying to solve? And does it have breadth? Um, does quantity provide a quality all of its own with that data set? Hmm. And, and is it perishable? Um, you know, is it a point in time data set? Is it a data set that's refreshing itself? Does it need to be refreshed? Um, will the perishability of the data set affect the performance of the predictive algorithm over time? So we sort of run through all these questions when we're looking at the data set. Um, and then once we're satisfied that the data is um, sufficiently unique uh, as an asset, then we figure out, okay, well, then how do you use this to develop a competitive advantage that's going to grow over time using machine learning or by, by feeding this data into an intelligent system that sort of gets this virtuous loop going? That is, the data feeds an algorithm that pre- pre- predicts something for a customer the customer really likes that, so they use the product more and more, and then that adds more data to the system, and then that makes the prediction better, and so on and so forth. And you get into this like virtuous loop, which that was one of the very first things we wrote about when we started the fund in 2014, like this virtuous loop effect. Um, so, you know, how do you measure that though at the seed stage, right? Like we're investing sort of mostly pre, definitely pre-traction, but you know, sometimes before a product's all the way in the market, right? Um, so how do you measure that? And the only way you can do it is by looking at experiments. And so, you know, taking the data set, r- trying to make a few predictions um, that you think will be of value to customers. And then we dig into those experiments with, uh, with companies in sort of the second or third meeting. And we try to understand, okay, well, what accuracy threshold are you trying to get to? Is this going to be useful to your customers if it's 70% accurate or 80? Or does it have to be 100% accurate? So we figure out the accuracy threshold and then we figure out, okay, well, how close are you to that? Like when you ran your experiment, what predictive accuracy did you get with what precision and recall? And, um, you know, the delta between what your customers want and what you can do today, what are you going to try and what are you going to change about the system to try and make that up? And then we ask a bunch of other questions, you know, how much data do you need to get there? Do you need a bit more data to get there or do you have enough data today? What's sort of a critical mass of data? And then, you know, did you run that experiment multiple times with different data and did it stay the same or did it start predicting weird things or generating weird sentences? And then, you know, what's the payoff for your customer in the end? Um, how much value are they going to get out of it? So step one is analyze the data and figure out if it's actually a unique asset. And step two is figure out whether they have some way um, to use an intelligent system to compound the value of that data. Love it. So... You know, this is kind of an interesting point. We've got these standardized metrics uh, in SaaS, for instance, right? It's it's pretty clear. Yeah, it's pretty metricized. It's pretty clear for entrepreneurs. So all the entrepreneurs listening in the audience, what sort of milestones yeah. and thresholds they have to to reach to get to various stages of fundraising, right? And uh, mm-hmm. you went through some of the the main things you're looking for, like accuracy, precision, yeah. critical mass of data, the efficacy of different data sets, as well as the value for the customers. Um, are there standardized metrics and milestones in AI that you're looking for? 
um, along these different uh, dimensions, or or are there other dimensions that that you're sizing up as as companies move through these different stages? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it's sort of our um, our big work in progress, right? Which is how do we standardize around some of these things so that we can improve our decision making here as investors? And the short answer to your question is no, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> there's no sort of standard measure of like, okay, this company's uh, AI is really working, I guess, because it's being applied to so many different fields. And, you know, as we talked about before in medicine, you probably want to be close to hundred percent accuracy um, if you're making a, a life critical decision, but in some other fields, like, you know, maybe inventory management in a retail store, it's only 50% accurate today. So getting to 70% is pretty good. Um, so it's, it, I think the reason there aren't sort of standard metrics um, that you have to hit is because all the applications are completely, well, they're idiosyncratic to sure. the industry sure. you're applying it to. However, I think the type of metrics we should be measuring are starting to get standardized. And there's some of the things I mentioned. Um, so it depends. I guess the global metric you would think about for these AI-centric applications, the third wave, just sort of referring back to something we were talking about earlier today, is is it better than a human? Um, is probably the, the the main metric. Now, I don't think it's it's fair to expect a seed stage company to have developed an AI system that's better than a human. But if there if it if it looks like it might be better than a human in an experiment, then that's pretty promising, and you just sort of figure out all the ways in which that that could change once it goes into production. Right. So the burning question that everyone always has is: <laughs> Is there a reason to fear AI? And uh, yeah. You know, I want your take on this. And part of the reason I want your take is uh, I was talking to Tim O'Reilly about this and I asked him yeah. and he said, there is no reason to fear it. It's a tool just like every yeah. other type of technology. It's just a tool. But then he qualified his answer by saying, well, you know, but if you did want to build some type of runaway AI, you do it on a blockchain foundation. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, I just kind of want your take like, you know, is artificial super, super intelligence when we get there, is that something to be feared or, or not? Yeah, look, the short answer that, you know, I'd give, uh, you know, the family at Thanksgiving is absolutely not. You've got nothing to worry about um, because, you know, when you're in the weeds, like when you're looking at what these companies are actually doing day to day, um, it's it's still sort of basic computations. Like it's not, they're not really doing anything that scary. They require a lot of handholding these these systems. And there's a lot of human involvement today, a hell of a lot. Mm. Everything from labeling the data to picking what features to even try out to trying the features then trying different methods and then making it work on different hardware um, and then making it work under all these different operating conditions. It's There's so much hand-holding. So I really think there's nothing to worry about today um, in terms of could AI be used to do something that we don't want it to do. Um, it's, it's just not going to get any runaway abilities however you know what ai is and what machine learning more accurately is is it's it's a way to let computers do more stuff and it's being used by the big companies to develop runaway competitive advantages so i think uh, i think we need to reframe the ai debate to be completely about monopolies um and to really think about you know should we redefine our understanding of what a monopoly is because it was really formed, you know, I was I did my JD and had looked into all the the origins of antitrust and whatnot. And the the definition we have of monopolies is really just around well, if it's good for the consumer, then it's not a monopoly. And that's a really unidimensional way to think about a monopoly because <laughs> good for the consumer is like okay, if it's cheap, it's good. But we all know if it's cheap, it could be bad. It could be bad for the environment. It could be bad for culture. It could be bad for people's emotional health. Right. It could be bad for a whole bunch of different reasons. And like the the Chicago School of Economists have sort of managed to commandeer the definition of efficiency and and uh, as determined by a price. And then that has informed our view of what a monopoly is. And I think we need to re really go back and question that because some of these tech companies, bringing it back to your question. Some of these tech companies are building these runaway advantages and these massive monopolies that are subsuming entire industries like retail and whatnot. So 
I don't know. I think we don't have to be worried about an AI getting a runaway advantage. I think we do have to be worried about a group of people running a company getting a lot of power in society because they're using AI as a lever to dominate entire industries and get a lot of money for themselves. Interesting. So I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought up this point on monopolies because I was uh, reading mm-hmm. an article the other day, Chris Dixon wrote it, and it's kind of about mm-hmm. centralization of power with, uh, with yeah. GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, yep. Amazon, right? And he's writing about centralization versus decentralization and how the web and the internet kind of started as this decentralized group of contributors creating standard mm-hmm. protocols and how it's shifted into you know power centralized with these tech companies. Uh, and he thinks Web 3.0 is going to shift back to decentralized environments. Uh, yeah. And he cites drivers like crypto networks and also the breadth of developer talent that's outside of these these tech companies. Um, just would would love to get your quick take on whether you agree or disagree with Chris and how you think AI, yeah. AI might play a role. Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is these tech monopolies have such a runaway advantage at this point that there's no real uh, turning point or countervailing force in the technology ecosystem that's really going to prevent them from doing that. Like these algorithms they got are so good, they're just getting better and better. And they're, they're not really, bre- there are no real breakpoints in the success of the products and technologies. So breaking these monopolies up is only really possible through some massive exogenous threat, something that comes from outside the technology ecosystem. So it's going to come from, you know, a societal backlash or a regulatory action or a fundamental change in the internet, which is getting to Chris's point about a decentralized web, web 3.0. So I would say that, you know, it has to be something of this magnitude, like a full decentralization of the web to break down these monopolies. Now, is that going to happen? I think, look, I'm all for decentralization or the technologies that decentralize their really interesting technically, um, but also what they may allow for society could be really great. My frustration with these sorts of arguments so far is we're not really grounding them in computational capability and complexity, um, which is that decentralization is all well and good, but it's just really, really expensive to run decentralized networks today. And I think we need to start having more rational conversations around what we can and can't decentralize based on the computational abilities, capabilities that we have today. You know, should we be decentralizing the entire payments ecosystem? Probably not, um, because that's just not going to work for us. We're used to payments of a certain convenience and speed, and we just can't run computers uh, on decentralized networks that fast. But, you know, is it worth decentralizing access to healthcare data or thing or decentralizing stock exchanges? Probably, um, because we can run computers fast enough to do things at the speed to which we expect and are required to do in those areas. Hmm. Um, So I'm all for it, but I think we need to start grounding some of these arguments in computational capability and complexity. Ash, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Yeah, I think something that um, isn't sort of spoken about enough outside of the doors of uh, the offices of investors is really nuts and bolts questions about process. You know, what questions do you ask? What models do you build? How do you run this valuation? It, it goes back to the Picasso quotation, like when, when art critics get together, they talk about form and function, whatever. And when artists get together, they talk about where to buy cheap turpentine. I sort of want to know the cheap turpentine tricks. <laughs> investing. You know, everyone asks, like, what CRM do you use? Where do you get this market data? It's, it's sort of funny being an investor because you don't really have a water cooler, right? Like, Everyone's always traveling around. These firms are pretty small. Um, you talk to your partners, but getting best practices from from lots of different places in the industry is actually a pretty hard thing to do. So I would sort of like that at the end of these interviews you do with investors, you ask them something like that, um, something very specific about their process that they think they do that no one else does. I like it a lot. Is there anyone in particular that you you admire from a process standpoint? Yeah, it's funny because it's hard to tell uh, because you don't really hear too <laughs> much know, about yeah. the faults yeah. of people's process. Um, but I'll give you I'll give you someone on my wish list uh, 
that is not in venture, but is you know probably in my mind one of the most fantastic investors of all time. So, uh, which is Howard Marks. So good luck getting Howard Marks on the show. <laughs> there it is. All right. Um, what investor has inspired and influenced you most, and why? If not Howard, yeah, Marks. it's funny. <laughs> I, I would say Howard Marks, but um, the reason I like him is because he resonates with me. Like basically, he just doesn't care what other people think, and he thinks that's the most important thing. Um, so that's more someone that that resonates with me. Someone that's inspired me and influenced me the most. I mean, obviously my partner Mark, but um, but also you know working side by side with Naval and Angelus for so many years. You know, we were um, doing everything together and just just the collection of heuristics he has, you know, he just has hundreds and hundreds of heuristics in his head, which is like, if this, then that, and there are these amazing rules you can just apply to an investment opportunity to give you a really high degree of clarity in a really short period of time. You know, if the company has this, just don't invest, or if they're doing this, just don't invest. Um, And so working with him and just sort of writing down those hundreds of heuristics over time was um was was really worthwhile and something i've absolutely carried through to our process today awesome and then finally ash what's the best way for listeners to connect with you um they can just email me uh we read absolutely everything and it's just ash at zvp.com and uh we'll read everything that's sent to us well if if you haven't read Ash's writing, you should you should get into it. They're blogs on Medium. Uh, they write very focused, specific content on artificial intelligence. Uh, some of the best I've ever come across. Uh, Ash, thank uh, you thanks. so much for coming on the program. This has been a real pleasure, and uh, look forward to meeting up next time. I'm an SF. Yeah, please do come by. I can promise you that I uh, will make you some good coffee. Being an Australian Italian, <laughs> perfect. All right, Ash. Thanks so All much. Right. Thanks, Nick. Take it easy. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.